Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been examining Shakespeare's history play, Richard II, which is the first in a sequence, a double tetralogy of plays, tracing the decline and final bloody end of the Plantagenet dynasty in England, beginning in the play Richard II with the deposing and death of Richard. This continues all the way through eight plays, ending with the accession of the Tudor dynasty of Shakespeare's own time. To remind us a little of the rather complicated plot line here, Richard II has been on the throne because he is the eldest son of the eldest son of the seven fabled sons of King Edward III. The eldest son was Edward, the Black Prince, who is dead, and by the rule called primogeniture, the crown went to Richard as the eldest son of the eldest son. Only two of those fabled seven sons are still alive at that point, and it only takes act two of our present play to eliminate one of them. John of Gaunt makes in act two a tremendous famous deathbed speech about the glorious Isle of England, an expression of the rising nationalism of the English nation, and promptly goes off stage and dies. Richard immediately says, oh, good, good luck for me because I need money. I am prepared to go off and fight wars against the rebels in Ireland, and I need money to finance that, and therefore I am going to take, I am going to confiscate all of John of Gaunt's estates and wealth in order to do that. The one remaining son out of the famous seven is the Duke of York, who is an old man and who accosts Richard when Richard declares this and says this is not only wrong, it is terribly foolish on your part. How art thou a king but by fair sequence and succession? This is the right succession, the inheritance of John of Gaunt should go to his son, Henry Hefford, known as Bolingbroke, and you are taking it away. What you are doing, therefore, is abrogating the law of proper succession, and that's dangerous because you keep your position by the same rules. You pluck a thousand dangers on your head, York says. You lose a thousand well-disposed hearts, York says, and he is right, and we watch this play out. Richard has already alienated, by all accounts, a good part of England already, and this is going to do it for sure. It is also going to lend strength to Bolingbroke, the son of John of Gaunt, it is going to lend legitimacy 
to his attempt to overthrow Richard. And it will create allies for him that he might not have had otherwise. Richard cares absolutely nothing for the admonishments of York and says, I'm off to my Irish wars. And by the way, Uncle York, I create you Lord Governor of England. You should be enjoying your retirement, but no. You get to be, as an old man, the governor of England while I am gone. Off he goes. Then, in the long scene one of Act Two, more people come onto the scene, and they are the nobility, representatives of the nobility, who will, it is quite clear, flock to Bolingbroke, and we will see this as it plays out, led by the chief of them, Northumberland. And the conversation that takes place really amounts probably in part for purposes of informing or reminding the audience of the situation that has been going on. It is a slanted view from the point of view of the alienated and aggrieved nobility. Northumberland says the king is not himself, but basely led by flatterers. And those flatterers make him hate us, the nobility. Another member, Ross, says the commons hath he pilled with grievous taxes and quite lost their hearts. The nobles hath he fined for ancient quarrels and quite lost their hearts. Richard has alienated both ends of the spectrum. He's alienated the commoners. He's alienated the nobility. And yet another member, Willoughby, chimes in and says, daily new exactions are devised as blanks benevolences and I wot not what, and so forth. God, in God's name, what will become of this, he says. Northumberland adds essentially words to the effect of what has he done with all this money that he has culled from people? Wars hath not wasted it, Northumberland says, for ward he, ward he hath not, but basically, basically yielded upon compromise, that which his noble ancestors achieved with blows. More hath he spent in peace than they in wars. Richard has simply squandered, in other words, with corrupt, decadent, high living, all the money it has not been spent on anything to any purpose. Granted, this is a slanted point of view, but nevertheless, that is the cause of grievance. And Richard has clearly alienated just about all possible allies before he even gets out of Act Two. And slowly we watch what support Richard might have had despite the doctrine of the anointed king that demands total allegiance because God put him on the throne. We watch that allegiance melt away almost methodically it starts disappearing, the rats start to desert the sinking ship, which lends meaning 
to a short speech by the Queen, Act Two, Scene Two, in which she speaks in terms of the metaphors of shadow and substance and repeats, as we saw last time, the word nothing. R what Richard is, is melting away. His substance is melting away. He is becoming a shadow. He is approaching nothing. And time is enormously compressed in the play, something that we'd simply have to go with in thinking about the play, it would probably not be particularly noticeable in production of the play, but if we sit back and analyze, things seem to happen in a very compressed way. Richard walks out the door and immediately Bolingbroke lands. Richard leaves England and Bolingbroke lands joins with Northumberland and, as the directions say of Act Two, Scene Three, with forces. Bolingbroke has been exiled in Act One. He is dangerous to Richard as the son of John of Gaunt, and Richard knows it, and he exiles Bolingbroke on trumped-up charges. Bolingbroke has returned and meets with the people who in this play will become his allies, chief of which is Northumberland, who introduces to him in scene three of act two, my son, young Harry Percy. And if you know the whole tetralogy, or even if you just know the succeeding play, Henry IV, part one, you know that Bolingbroke will become Henry IV and will have a son, Prince Hal. And Prince Hal's chief antagonist will become this young Harry Percy, whose nickname is Hotspur. Here, however, we're all allies. What will happen, foreshadowing here, is that these allies in a rebellion against Richard will then turn on Henry IV and rebel against him. This is what is sometimes called the Tudor myth. The Tudor myth because Elizabeth and the line of Tudors used this as convenient propaganda in order to enforce obedience to the monarchy they deposed Richard II, goes the Tudor myth, and see what happens the minute you depose God's anointed king, whether you believe in a providential monarchy or not, it sets an example. You, you overthrow one person for convenience, and that gives everybody else the idea, oh, I could become king too by overthrowing you. And that is exactly what will happen. The double tetralogy is, in effect, a meditation on these ideas. Here, young Harry Percy is introduced to Bolingbroke, and Percy, who will be Hotspur in the next play, says, My gracious Lord, I tender you my service, such as it is, being tender, raw, and young. 
which elder days shall ripen and confirm to more approved service and desert. There is a young generation versus old generation pattern that runs throughout the play. There is also the motif of fathers and sons, which goes along with it. Richard is constantly said to be young and therefore immature, even though it makes no logical sense because Richard has been on the throne, at least the real Richard in history, had been on the throne for 20 years. He was no spring chicken. Nonetheless, he is portrayed as youthful in order to set up this contrast of the generations, and that will continue into the rest of this tetralogy with new father-son and generational differences. At any rate, Bolingbroke is being introduced to allies here. He has landed from the north. He is coming down from Scotland, from the Celtic areas, and claims that he is only here because he needs to claim his rightful titles and estates, which Richard is wrongfully and in fact illegally taking away. He has a point in terms of law and rightness, but the question is, what's really going on in Bolingbroke's mind? One of the fascinations of the play Richard II is that it becomes, we have not yet quite got to the point yet, but soon, especially with Act Three, it becomes a remarkable psychological study of Richard II, an inward look at the workings of a fascinating, complex, troubled man whose enemy and opposite number, Bolingbroke, is utterly inscrutable. We have no idea what goes on in Bolingbroke's head. And dramatists make choices of this sort. Any storyteller does. What should I disclose? What shall I leave opaque and make the reader guess at? And what is Bolingbroke doing when he lands and gathers an army in the north of England in the absence of the king. Richard is still in Ireland at this point. Is he really honest when he claims he's only coming for what is properly his due? He claims that, but then you stop to think of the situation. Somebody lands and gathers an army. What's he going to do if he is given those estates? Well, okay, fine, I'm satisfied now. I'll be a good boy and I'll be obedient to the king. Obviously not. If you've taken a step like this, you have to go all the way. You will not be trusted. You will not be accepted. Is Richard simply going to say, well, okay, here's your estates back? And so long as you obey me now in the future. No way. Bolingbroke has shown himself highly dangerous. This is crossing the Rubicon. This is a line which Bolingbroke has crossed. And surely Bolingbroke, who is nothing 
if not practical and cunning, knows that is the case. Yet we get no indication of what is really going on in his head, how ambitious he is. Has he in fact contrived this whole situation and Richard by his greed simply played into his hand? It's an interesting question and the answer is ambiguous. At any rate, the next thing that happens is as they are close to Barclay Castle, the last surviving son of the Seven Sons, the Duke of York, shows up and accosts Bolingbroke as the person who is in charge of England right at the moment. Bolingbroke greets him, my gracious uncle. This is Act Two, Scene Three. And York says, tut, tut, grace me no grace, nor uncle me no uncle. I am no traitor's uncle. And, sounding the generational theme, were I but now the lord of such hot youth as when brave Gaunt thy father and myself rescued the black prince, that young Mars of men, oh, how quickly should this arm of mine go up against you. The old man wishing that he had the strength to oppose this person to whom he is in fact related. Bolingbroke swears that he is only here for his own and he says to York, you are my father now, for methinks in you I see old Gaunt alive. They look at each other. York says this, and this is a crucial moment in the play. This is a turning point in the play. Because my power is weak and all ill left, I must do something. But since I cannot let it be known unto you, I do remain as neuter. Extraordinary statement. He means neutral. I am not going to take sides in this because I have no power in this contention. I'm going to simply remain neutral and stay out of it. So fare you well, unless you please to enter in the castle and there repose you for this night. Okay, I'm old, I'm not a player, I'm simply declaring neutrality here, but by the way, I'll put you up for the night. Clearly, the allegiance to Richard is slipping. And the last lines of scene three, York says, it may be I will go with you. But yet I'll pause, for I am loath to break our country's laws. Nor friends, nor, nor foes, to me welcome you are. Things past redress are now with me past care. 
a confused, helpless old man waffling in four lines, hardly even making rational sense. But the gist of it was the first thing he said. It may be, I will go with you. He veers emotionally like a weather vane, but he is bowing to what he sees as the inevitable. I'm loath to break the country's laws, but you are welcome. And finally, in the last line, simply shrugs with helpless resignation. Things past redress are now with me past care. I'm too old for this. I give up. That change of allegiance on the part of your who declares neutrality but is clearly siding with Bolingbroke, bowing to what he sees as the inevitable, is an indicator because York is the last of those seven sons, so it has a symbolic impact beyond anything logistical. Richard's reinforcements continue to melt away. The Welsh are supposed to be allies, but the Welsh, in a very brief scene four, declare to the Earl of Salisbury that we've stayed for 10 days waiting for Richard. He seems to have parked himself in Ireland. We see no sign of him. Therefore, we will disperse ourselves. We're going home. We've waited 10 days, no Richard, forget it. Salisbury says, stay yet another day. Welsh captain says, tis thought that the king is dead. We've heard rumors on social media that he's dead anyway. We will not stay. Whether they are genuinely impatient or simply using this as a pretext, more allies disappearing. Salisbury remarks, ah, Richard, with the eyes of heavy mind, I see thy glory like a shooting star fall to the base earth from the firmament. The sun sets weeping in the lowly west. The sun falling, the light plunging from the heavens. This is imagery that begins building up a pattern in the play. It also echoes, no doubt, the phrase in the Bible about Lucifer falling from the heavens like a shooting star. We begin Act Three. Act Three is what I sometimes call the hinge act in a five-act play structure, the turning point act, whether the turn is for the comic or the tragic, that is not always quite true, but it is definitely true in Richard II. And as I have pointed out previously, the full title of the play is The Tragedy of Richard II. And from this point, we begin to get a close-up look at Richard and an internal close-up look at that. And it does take on the shape of a tragedy, of a tragic fall. The king at the, at the apex of the social order 
will plunge like a shooting star. And Bolingbroke, who claims he's only here for his proper titles and estates, is already, in scene one of Act Three, beginning to give orders and act like, acting like he's ruling the place, the place being England. They have captured Richard's allies, or two of the three, Bushy, Baggett, and Green, the rather undignified and clearly non-aristocratic names signifying that these are lesser middle-class types from uh, which Richard has been getting a certain amount of income, and they have been supporting him. They've captured Bushy and Green, and Bolingbroke is giving orders to have them put to get to death. He is reading them the list of their transgressions and says, you have in manner with your sinful hours made a divorce betwixt his queen and him, broke the possession of a royal bed. Well, that's interesting. We have so far thought of these people as political allies of Richard. This hints, as critics point out, in veiled terms at something a little more than that. Sinful hours. What are these sinful hours? Is there a veiled hint that Richard is gay, is, has had homosexual relationships that have divorced him from his queen in a manner of speaking, broke the possession of a royal bed. It's left ambiguous, but it's an interesting passage. At any rate, for all of your transgressions, see them delivered over to execution in the hand of death. And by what right, Bolingbroke gives these commands is a little bit uncertain in terms of proper legalities. At any rate, he's acting as if he is all but king. Where is the king? The king lands again in England. Bolingbroke has landed in Richard's absence. Richard, in Act 3, Scene 2, lands again in England, and we immediately get this look at Richard that is psychologically fascinating. It is also dramatically fascinating. Richard II is a wonderful role for an actor, precisely because Richard the second himself is an actor. He is nothing if not dramatic, theatrical, melodramatic, in an over-the-top sort of way. And he begins that behavior right here and now in scene two. He lands upon the shore of England and says this, Dear Earth, I do salute thee with my hand. He bends and touches the ground. 
though rebels wound thee with their horses' hoofs, as a long-parted mother with her child plays fondly with her tears and smiles in meeting, so weeping, smiling, greet I thee, my earth. He is making a speech to the earth, and this goes on and on and on for the greater part of a page of text. He's addressing the earth and says, Feed not thy sovereign's foe, my gentle earth. And then asks the earth, Let thy spiders rise up against all the rebels who are my enemies. Yield stinging nettles to mine enemies. Send a lurking adder to my enemies. What is he saying? And as always, as I tell my students, you have to dramatize. Imagine, since we are reading the play and not watching a production, you have to stage it in your mind and imagine what would the effect of this be to Richard's followers who are staring at him and listening to this speech. And it would be something like dumbfounded. What are you talking about? You are addressing the earth and commanding the spiders to attack Bolingbroke? You can infer this. Shakespeare, as usual, provides no stage directions, either explaining or giving instructions on how something is to be played, almost never. But we can infer the look on the Lord's faces when Richard says to them, Mock not my senseless conjuration, lords. He realizes they are looking at him funny, <laughs> as well they might. And what kind of monarch do we have on our hands? Bolingbroke, according to O'Murrow, who is the son, by the way, of York, we still have another father-son pair who will come into play towards the end of the play. Young O'Murrow says, we are too remiss while Bolingbroke, through our security, grows strong and great in substance and in power. Richard says to O'Murrow, oh, discomfortable cousin, knowst thou not that when the searching eye of heaven is hid behind the globe that lights the lower world, then thieves and robbers range abroad unseen in murders and in outrage bully here. But when from under this terrestrial ball he fires the proud tops of the eastern pines and darts his light through every guilty hole, then murders, treasons, and detested sins, the cloak of night being plucked from off their backs, stand bare and naked, trembling at themselves. So, when this thief, this traitor, Bolingbroke, who all this while hath reveled in the night while we were wandering with the Antipodes, shall see us rising in our throne, the east, 
His treasons will sit blushing in his face, not able to endure the sight of day, but self-affrighted, tremble at his sin. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm from off an anointed king. The image of the sun, when the sun is in the Antipodes, on the other side of the earth, it's dark, and robbers and thieves and murderers range freely and unafraid. But when that sun rises again, and of course he means himself, when that sun shows itself, Bolingbroke will be revealed in that light for the filthy thief and traitor that he is, and he will self-affrighted tremble at his sin. Not all the water in the rough, rude sea can wash the balm off from an anointed king. That, those are crucial lines, stating from Richard's mouth the doctrine of God's anointed, the king, cannot be opposed by anyone because God anointed him and put him on the throne. He is not there simply by genealogy. He is not there by political contract. He is not there even by politics. He is put there by God and to rise against him is to attempt to rise against God. The anointed king is a biblical reference referring to the anointing of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. Richard is stating that doctrine and seems to firmly believe in it and believe that that power makes him invulnerable. He is, as the very title of the play lets on, he will find out otherwise. Nonetheless, this is his statement, but here he is making weird statements in terms of practical politics. They are in a bad way. Bolingbroke has risen up and is gathering allies even as they are losing them, and he is talking about, well, I am the king, and therefore, because the king is God's anointed, he is. Another part of the doctrine is that the king has two bodies. This is the famous doctrine of the king's two bodies. He is his land. The first body of the king is his human personal body, but his second symbolic body, he is the land and his people. Therefore, the whole speech conjuring up the earth and all that the earth can do as an ally is very much a part of this doctrine. I can send the powers of the earth against my enemies. And he goes on to say after the lines that I just read, that for every man that Bolingbroke hath pressed, God for his Richard hath in heavenly pay a glorious angel. I am the anointed king. I can cause an army of spiders to rise up from the earth and angels to come down to aid me. <clears throat> Meanwhile, 
His followers are looking at him like, are you delusional or what? Does he believe this? How can he be so divorced from reality? We will probe at the psychology of Richard even as we watch him plunge the sun falling from the heavens. And we will take up from this point the next time.